Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the FOMEP's Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with authors who have new books out in the field. We're joined today by Nadav Shalef of the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He has a new book called Homelands, Shifting Borders and Territorial Disputes that was just published by Cornell University Press. Uh, Nadav, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be with you. So tell us about the book. Um, why, why did you write this book and what do you think the major contribution of this book is going to be? Sure. Um, thanks. Uh, so this book really starts where uh, my last book ended. Um, so my last book was uh, heavily focused on uh, Israeli nationalism and really took a, a very deep dive into the way in which uh, Israelis and Zionist movements thought about the basic aspects of their political community. Right? Who are we? Uh, what kind of uh, state uh, do we want to build? Uh, and where is uh, our homeland? And that book explored those the changes in Israeli nationalism on those dimensions over time. Uh, the reaction to that book, or one of the reactions to that book was, uh, that's great in the Israeli context, but how do we know that the argument that you make, uh, that these basic aspects of nationalism evolve uh, over time, how do we know that those arguments hold anywhere else? And I didn't have a really good answer to that question. And so this book started from uh, an attempt to say, okay, let's take one of those dimensions of nationalism, specifically homelands, uh, and see uh, how far the original argument uh, the original argument travels. And so that's what this book does, right, is that it explores the idea of homelands uh, specifically in much greater depth and articulates a, a sort of a, uh, an analogous theory for how and why uh, the places that people think of as their homeland stop being part of their homeland uh, around the world and not limited to the uh, Israeli cases, and in fact, not limited to the Middle East. Great. So, and, and so I think one, the, of the thing, one of the things that you that you you set out in the book as you as you as you lay it out is uh, this concept of homeland, which I, which you use in a way which is uh, maybe different from the way other people might intuitively understand it. And uh, tell us what you mean by homeland and why it's so important to think about it in this way. Sure. So I argued that homelands. Uh, in the specific context, and not so much in their colloquial use, are a particular feature of nationalism. Uh, I rely on uh, geographers who distinguish between uh, cultural regions and you know, some other labels for these that uh, ethnic groups have, which refer to, uh, if you will, to the places that the groups are from. Uh, homelands specifically are called into being by nationalism, which says, uh, we want to control our political destiny, or a group wants to control its political destiny. And homelands refers to the territory that they uh, define as the place in which they want to actualize that control. And so that's a very uh, specific, I think, understanding of, uh, of homelands. And so in my view, the homelands are, are less, or the colloquial use of, relevant is diff of homelands is different than this particularly nationalist use of it. And, and so, this allows and so us to not do, all territory is created equal then. Right. So there are two, there are two elements. Right. So there is homeland territory and not homeland territory, right, for nationalists. So people may care, and we see this 
around the world, people care uh, intensely about some territory, but you take out, you step three feet to the right, right, and they don't care about it any, uh, anymore. Uh, and sometimes they stop caring about territory that they used to really care about, and they stop categorizing land as part of the homeland. And I was really interested in how that switch, how that switch happens. Now, what's interesting is that um, while a good part of the book is taken up with uh, kind of quantitative statistical analysis, the core of your definition of homeland is very much uh, one rooted in shared understandings, collective identities, and these discourses of nationalism. Tell us how you make that work in terms of uh, uh, understanding what a homeland is and how you know it when you see it. Sure. So I would say part of the, the broader uh, goal of the book is to show that you can combine those two, that it's possible to combine uh, serious understand, uh, serious attention paid to, uh, to narrative and to ideas and to meaning with positivist quantitative analysis. Uh, and the key is to find data that's consistent with both or to create data that's consistent with, uh, with both. And so one of the things that I, uh, I did to do that is to look uh, at how uh, domestic media around the world talked about territory that they had lost. And when you do that, you can actually see territory uh, drop from the, uh, from the discourse in particular cases, right? So, um, you know, in, in Pakistan, they stopped talking about uh, East Pakistan very, very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And they switched their terminology and start talking about Bangladesh, right? In ways that uh, we can't, it's very difficult to imagine, right, Palestinians stopping to talk, talking about, or would they talk about, about Jaffa, right? And so I think those are the kinds of changes that would, if they happen, that would let us say, oh, those areas are shifting away from being considered as part of the, of the homeland. Uh, because in my view, as soon as it drops out of the narrative, not as soon as, but it, a, a particular territory dropping out of the uh, discourse in a particular society is a marker that it's less important. And so why does it drop out at some times and not others? Uh, so there are a couple of reasons that could, uh, that could take place. My argument is uh, that it generally comes along in two, in two ways. Uh, sometimes groups uh, stop talking about uh, territory or we talk about it differently. Uh, as part of the need to make some sort of deal with another group for mundane political power, right? So I need to cooperate with another group. We may slightly disagree about, uh, about uh, territorial issues. And so to mask that difference will blur how we talk about it. And so over time, that blurring replaces the original quite explicit claim to the, to the territory. Other times, the logic that's used to identify territory as the homeland becomes untenable, right? So uh, to give you uh, an example of that latter, uh, latter course. So uh, one of the ways in which the uh, German conservative movement maintained its homeland claims to the land uh, east of the Ordonaissa rivers, that is, the, that is in, today's, uh, in today's Poland, is by saying that the people there are not free to choose. Right? And because of that, all, right, they, we know that they would really want to rejoin uh, the other Germans, and those territories would then become part of, of Germany after all. 
uh, after the collapse of the of communism when and free elections in Poland when the people in those territories clearly had no intention of rejoining uh, uh, Germany uh, or they want to stay, stay, keep living under Polish sovereignty the logic for maintaining the claim to the homeland was just simply wasn't viable anymore and so even among that party claims to those territories disappeared or waned so those are the two main ways in which they uh in which they in which people stop claiming territory that they once claimed but one thing which is interesting is that you don't uh, uh at least as i read it uh present this as kind of mechanistic or something you can read off of priors so it's not just about the distribution of populations it's not just about um you know kind of the passage of time um but it really does in, at least as i read it come down to the domestic politics of it and the interests of the major actors involved and how they choose to frame it is that right yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, we're often tempted to look for uh, sort of automatic covariates, if you will, right, of things that will predict whether or not the territory will uh, stop being part of the homeland, right? And there are some things that do matter, right? Uh, you know, having co-ethnics on, on lost territory does make it much less likely uh, that uh, uh, it will be forgotten right, or be redefined as not part of the homeland. But the process is really not, not automatic, right? There is, this, there is this really deep and fundamental political dimension that, that is, uh, whose outcomes are not predictable, right? As we can predict that a particular fight will take place, right, or a particular argument will occur, uh, but whether or not a change actually takes place depends on the outcome of the domestic political battle in each society and that battle is, uh, we can predict it'll take place, but it's really, really hard to predict ex ante who's gonna win that. Because for every, for every political leader that tries to push through a blurring of the uh, territorial claims for whatever, for whatever reason, there's gonna be someone who stands up and says, you know, you're betraying our, our cherished uh, homeland. How could, you, how could you do that? And there is a, a fight that takes place, often violent, uh, within uh, within societies, and I think I haven't found a way to predict who's going to win those uh, win those yet. I will say, over time, in democracies, uh, you know, it does appear that uh, it's easier to forget lost homeland territory, to recategorize territory that one loses as not part of the homeland, uh, but it's far from a deterministic uh, outcome. Now, a, a good, a significant portion of the book, uh, actually probably most of the book, um, takes place outside of the Middle East. You have chapters on Germany, on Italy, and then the, the quantitative uh, cross-national chapters. But since, uh, since the audience uh, for this podcast is primarily uh, Middle East um, focused, can you give us some examples drawn from the Middle East where you can kind of illustrate these dynamics playing out? Um, sure. So we can talk about uh, we can talk about both Israel and uh, and Palestine. In the book, sure. I spend a lot of time, uh, not so much breaking new ground, but illustrating these dynamics uh, in the within the Palestinian national movement. I think that the um, the decision over the uh, 70s and 80s to accept partition by uh, Fatah. Uh, 
sort of illustrates these. This was a decision that was initially taken for quite explicitly tactical purposes, framed as uh, framed in, in terms of a, of a short-term theory of stages. Uh, to my mind, the its onset can't be explained by looking at, you know, our reaction to the war, or either '67 or in uh, or in '73 or to the Nakba or any sort of other kinds of the changes that might have led to that uh, outcome. And you see it's spread over time within Fatah and within the Palestinian national movement uh, more strongly all the way until the sort of uh, mid-2000s, right, when uh, Abu Mazen sort of clearly articulates uh, states, right, Palestine for me is the West Bank uh, and, and Gaza and sort of eliding other parts of the uh, of what had been considered the Palestinian homeland before. What the Palestinian case really shows quite strongly for us, though, is that just how contingent these changes are. Right? One of the arguments that I make is that for these changes to spread and become real, uh, they need to be reinforced politically. And what we see, in fact, what we see going on right now uh, among Palestinians is uh, something about withdrawal from the idea of the, the acceptance of partition and in fact the redefinition of uh, the territory in which Palestinians can achieve their uh, national aspirations uh, because it's not working, right? And so to the extent that uh, ideas consistent with partition lose politically, uh, we're not going to see them or we're not going to see them spread and we're going to see other kinds of solutions uh, one-state solutions of various uh, uh, of various kinds become much much more dominant in uh, in Palestinian discourse. So it's not necessarily unidirectional. You, these these ideas can swing back in the other direction if the circumstances yeah. are right. I think that's absolutely true. Right, these ideas of homelands uh, and of their expansive nature remain. Uh, they remain in the um, in sort of the repertoire of things that might be claimed as part of the homeland and available for political entrepreneurs to use. And so and we see them recur, right? We see, for example, even in Germany, there are still groups that periodically call for, you know, Germany to extend its authority over other parts of the German uh, homeland. Or in Italy, there are occasionally calls for the extension of Italian sovereignty over what are now Slovenia and, uh, and Croatia. And so, you know, they remain, and then the question is, how much power do they have? How much social resonance do they have? And those are things that change. They change with the fortunes of these political movements, uh, whether or not they have capable leadership, mm -hmm. uh, and whether or not people can uh, tie other good things to one vision uh, or another. In the Palestinian case, I think the, the failure to achieve statehood has really weakened people or, or weakened the, uh, in the idea of Palestine uh, that differs from what it had been previously. Now, the Palestine case is interesting here because it, it raises the question for me of how deep these changes need to go. So you focus on, on the political leadership and the movements, but if you have a situation where uh, Fatah and the PLO uh, are willing to redefine the homeland as you described, and yet many Palestinians continue to kind of yearn for their homes on the other side of the Green Line. 
how far does consciousness need to change at the popular level for you to conclude that uh, that homelands have been redefined? All right. So that is a that's a, a great question, and there are a couple ways to uh, to get at that. So first, I quite clearly make the argument that these things start at the elite level. Yeah. I think that's sort of the way where this is pitched, and that's a that's a claim. People can argue with that. Um, you know, I think the, it's also, there, so there are two, right, so that's one, um, that's part of the, the part of the argument. And this book doesn't really look at the, um, at the popular level beyond that. Uh, but one can, for example, look at that in a number of ways. So one way people sometimes do that is by looking at survey data, right? Take it for what it's worth. That it will vary from time to time. What I did when looking at these kinds of dynamics in the Israeli case to looking at, you know, when, they, when the West Bank was redefined for the labor movement in the 1950s outside of what they considered to be the land of Israel or the East Bank of the Jordan for almost all the Zionist movements, right? You can look at other, you see that relatively quickly these other definitions of the homeland get uh, introduced into context in which it's hard to argue that they're not uh, uh, fully sort of accepted by society. And things like uh, children's literature and youth group movements uh, and sort of internal meetings of, um, uh, of groups that are, are not intended for any, for any publication in which, in which dissimulation is less likely to be, uh, to be taking, uh, taking place. Now, we clearly didn't see that among the Palestinians. Right? But we didn't see that in part, I argue, because of the failure of advocates of uh, a new version of uh, what the Palestinian homeland could look like to succeed. Right? And so the counterfactual, and one that I can show in other cases, but not in the Palestinian one, is that had they done so, relatively quickly we would see a redefinition of, uh, of Palestine to exclude territory that was not included in in what they had. Those are at least are the lessons from the uh, Italian, German, uh, Israeli cases, and more broadly, what the statistical analysis shows uh, around the world. I like the way you use the maps uh, to illustrate this, the, the, the maps that were produced by various actors um, with the uh, kind of the physical, or I'm sorry, the visual representation of the homeland. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, uh, I initially wanted, I liked maps. <laughs> the, the initial idea behind this project was to collect the maps drawn by uh, every nationalist movement around the world. Um, that turned out to be not feasible, uh, though I still think it would be a neat idea, um, in part because it turns out that groups with different resources have different uh, capabilities of drawing maps over time, or at least we have access to them differently, so it couldn't gather systematic data on it. But what you see in the maps in these particular cases, you can actually see them drawn differently, uh, including some territory uh, in time zero and excluding that territory uh, in time, uh, in a later time. So the question becomes, how did that, uh, how did that happen? Or where we might have expected it to happen, why didn't it uh, didn't happen? And so yeah, uh, these maps are a great source of data Mm -hmm. for figuring out sort of whether change took place, how deep it is, or at minimum, how do these groups want to portray the area that they see as their homeland? 
Yeah, I really like that part. Um, let's switch over to the, the second part of the book where you kind of reverse the, uh, reverse the causal arrows now and you try and look for connections between these homeland definitions and war. What, what do you find when you kind of, when you ramp this up into this broad cross-national uh, type of analysis? Sure, so I think there we have two main lessons. Uh, one is that homelands matter, right? That is uh, simply claiming or talking about a piece of territory uh, as part of the homeland uh, greatly increases the likelihood of international conflict uh, between neighbors that would share that territory. Now this is important, it might be obvious to uh, many of the folks who work on, on the Middle East, but in uh, international relations more broadly, the idea that just uh, what might be considered cheap talk, labeling uh, a territory as part of the homeland, that that in and of itself is a cause for conflict is something that is uh, not usually included in, uh, in studies of, of conflict and even of territorial conflict. So the, the idea that homelands matter uh, is sort of the first mm -hmm. uh, lesson. Uh, the second is that uh, homelands can change. Right? Even though they matter, they're a variable. And as a variable, they that can vary over time, and that implies that um, the the impact that they have or that their loss has on conflict could also vary, right? So once you no longer consider a territory part of the homeland, you should see a reduction in uh, in conflict over that territory. And indeed, we see evidence consistent with that as well. All right, so no. homelands matter, and they change. Now, did you have, have you encountered kind of pushback in terms of this kind of subjective definition of homelands that you develop in the first part of the book when you try and do the quantitative analysis of it um, by people saying that this is too squishy of a variable to to really work with, or do you feel like it's robust enough that you can meet those criticisms? Uh, so, I'm sure those criticisms are out there. Um, you know, I haven't done too much of a pushback on uh, on those, uh, in part because the goal is quite explicitly to capture the um, the what you characterize as squishiness, but the the, the sort of uh, socially constructed character of homelands. Uh, and the reality is that the alternatives are even worse. So one of the things that I spend a little bit of time doing in the book is go through the other ways in which people who think homelands might matter go try, try and capture what that is. And the other alternatives are just not as good. And so sure, this, this way of detecting whether or not territory has uh, the status of homeland territory has lots and lots of drawbacks. Uh, I just think it's, uh, it's marginally better than the alternatives we currently have. I would be delighted if there were uh, someone would come up with even better measures of getting at them. Uh, I think it's it's probably uh, probably doable, uh, but I think that's exactly the direction to go. You know, and you know, so one way of doing that, for example, which I don't have right now, is a measure of intensity. Mm. Right. That is, uh, for me, homeland is homeland is homeland, and it sort of applies equally to all parts of the of the territory. Um, but as as all of our listeners. I think intuitively, no, some 
parts even within the homeland may be more important than others, right? I, and so I don't have a measure, I don't have a way of capturing that, at least not as I use it in this, uh, in this book. Uh, and there are other dimensions. There are all sorts of um, other ways I think of extending the, the attempts to get at these socially constructed uh, ideas, uh, sort of in ways that are consistent with the theories that tell us why they're important and that we can try and use them to draw some generalizable conclusions. And I think, right, so I'm trying to do both and I'll let the reader judge whether or not I do so successfully. No, it's an exemplary uh, model of how you can combine qualitative and quantitative research. I think, it, I think people are going to find it quite compelling as a, as a way of trying to make this, uh, this type of conceptual work um, apply to the, the quantitative side. Um, you know, for the, for the last uh, a few minutes here, why don't we go back to where we began the conversation with, uh, with, with Israel and the, how Israelis define their homeland. And, you know, when you look at kind of recent events or try and make sense of where Israel is right now, where would you put them in your spectrum of how they are conceptualizing what the Jewish homeland is today? So I think that, uh, so I would prefer to talk about movements within Israel rather sure, than sure. Israelis, right? I mean, we, and so just like in, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but in my cases, we focus not on this sort of on the state level, but on the, I focus on the actors who are actually doing this, which tend to be in political movements. Sure. So, so let's I talk about that. that. Uh, sure. So for sure, the Israeli right, both secular and religious, conceives of uh, the West Bank as part of its homeland. Um, I'm even seeing a resurgence in, among the uh, religious Zionists of claims to territory east of the Jordan River in ways that they had dropped off for decades. And you start to see a resurgence of those claims, uh, those claims recently. I think the left uh, still does not include uh, the West Bank as part of what they see as the as the land of Israel, um, but I think all I think this entire process is driven by the but we're driven by two things. First, the reality of Israeli control. Right, that is, um, there is no, there is no. It's easy for Israelis, right, to include this as part of their vision of the homeland because they control it. Right, and so it's. Um, you wouldn't necessarily expect a group that is in control of a territory to not include it as part of the uh, as part of the homeland. Uh, I do think, however, that uh, were there to be a, uh, a an agreement, were there to be partition, although I think that seems to be unlikely, at least in the near uh, in the near term, uh, that the kind of dynamics that I illustrate uh, in this book would lead are likely to lead uh, Israelis to elide the areas that they currently think of as part of their homeland from that definition. So to me, one of the, I don't know if it, I don't know if hopeful is the right word, but one of the, one of the implications is that it is possible to get groups to change what they think of as, uh, as their homeland, even if we can't control that process or we can't, you know, sort of um, predict with great certainty uh, that it will, that it will succeed. But you, but you can see this playing out uh, with these movements, especially, especially on the left, I suppose, of how they 
dif differentially conceive of, say, Jerusalem, the rest of the West Bank, and Gaza. I mean, they see that differently in terms of whether or not it's part of the homeland, right? Sure. I mean, the easiest place to see this is to look at the, well, so I will say Jerusalem, I think, is different from the rest of the West Bank, even for Israelis on the left. Um, but I do, but you see this in the, uh, in the terminology that they use, right? So calling it, uh, and, and there's an argument over the labels used to talk about this territory inside Israel, about whether or not the West Bank should be called Judea and Samaria, or where it should be called the West Bank, mm -hmm. right? And of course, I'm not the first one to point out those, those differences, but those differences reflect an underlying, a different underlying understanding of those territories, right? Just like we wouldn't call, you might imagine an argument over whether or not uh, we should call California, California or Northern Mexico, right? And if we called it Northern Mexico, we'd say, oh yeah, really it's part of Mexico, right? Not really part of, uh, part of the United States. And so you have a similar thing going on uh, in Israel. Do we call, or do they call this, this territory the West Bank, in which case maybe it's not clear where it ultimately belongs, which opens the door to it not being part of the homeland, or you apply this sort of historical uh, Jewish designations to those territories, right? in which case, right, it, uh, it's, it affirms their status as part of the homeland. Now, now you, you said, you, you said clearly, part of the story. Sorry, yeah, you ahead. said clearly, oh, sorry, you said clearly before that you, you can't predict the outcomes of these battles, but if someone wanted to, what would they look for? What would be the leading indicators that would make you think that one conception of the homeland is winning out over another in, in, in the case of Israel here? Uh, so I would look at the, uh, at, the, at the distribution of the ways in which people talk about it, mm -hmm. right? And I guess and how, how often they speak about it. So how often does the territory occur in the media? How, when is it part of the discourse, right? Sort of over time. And then when it's talked about, how is it talked about? Is it talked about as if it's over there or as if it's here? Uh, and, and so then these labels are ways of, of doing it. Uh, one of the things that you see in cases across the, across the globe is as territories transition from their homeland status to non-homeland status, uh, is that people simply stop talking about them. They so just kind of drop off of the, uh, the discourse. They just become less important to everybody. And that's a marker of that transition and their loss of, uh, of homeland status. Uh, that's hard to imagine right now in Israel or in Palestine, um, but it has happened in lots of other equally contentious cases. Um, and so there's at least the, the possibility that that would take place in the future, if not the certainly no guarantee that it'll happen. Well, great. We've been speaking with Nadav Shalev of the University of Wisconsin about his new book, Homelands, Shifting Borders and Territorial Disputes, out from uh, Cornell University Press. Nadav, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mark.